Ephesians 5, 3 through 14. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints. Neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no whoremonger nor unclean person nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be not ye therefore partakers with them. For you are sometimes darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light. For whatsoever does make manifest is light. Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. Brother Gary, would you do this? Our God, we are again thankful that we can be in your house this morning, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the portion that we just read. Thank you for your blessings upon this. Your honor and glory is the person that we serve. We ask for Christ. One night a Pharisee named Nicodemus came to the Lord Jesus under cover of darkness. Nicodemus came saying, we know, right? We know you are sent from God as a teacher because nobody could do the things you do if God didn't send them. And while he was absolutely correct in what he asserted about the nature of Jesus, the Lord's response to him was to essentially say, unless and until you are born again, you don't know much of anything. And the conversation in John 3 continued as a living example of that fact. Nicodemus didn't understand what it meant to be born again. He didn't understand the work of the Holy Spirit. He didn't understand the purpose of Christ's coming. Jesus finally told Nicodemus that God so loved the world that he gave his only son to save the world because without Jesus, we all stand condemned before God. And then still talking to that man who came to him under cover of darkness, Jesus explained why the world is condemned. This is what he said, John 3, 19 through 21. This is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. The Lord Jesus is that light that has come into the world. Coming to him in faith is coming to the light. Coming to Jesus is stepping out of the darkness of sin, coming to him 
means that your deeds, they're going to be exposed. Coming to Jesus means that we live in him as light. We are children of light. We are, in his words, doing things, clearly seeing that God is at work in us. This contrast of light and darkness is used throughout Scripture. The Old Testament prophets promised a Messiah who would come and bring light to his people. In John 8, the Lord Jesus stood up in the temple courtyard and shouted, I am the light of the world. Later on in John 12, he even says in John 12, 46, I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not live in darkness. In his letters, the apostle John proclaims in 1 John 1, 5 and 6, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And if we say that we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we're liars. Acts 26, 18, as the Apostle Paul describes his own commissioning by the Lord Jesus, he was told by Jesus he was being sent to the Gentiles to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the power of God. The testimony of all the disciples of Jesus is that he is the light. We've seen that light. We've come to that light. We're children of light. We're no longer going to cower in the wicked refuge of darkness and sin. We are done with it. That is the main thrust of this passage in Ephesians 5. If you'll remember in verses 1 and 2, he's called on the church at Ephesus to imitate God the Father. And now in verses 3 through 7, he says that requires putting away sin. In verses 9 through 14, he's going to offer detailed instruction on how to embrace the works of righteousness. But all of that revolves around one simple statement, a simple change expressed in verse 8 of our text. For you were sometimes darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. The contrast between darkness and light between what we were and what we are, cannot be any more stark than this. It is, a, it is a dramatic contrast. On one side, it is utter darkness. It is the blackness of midnight. It's this shadowy, obscure nothingness of, of a sunless, moonless, starless, lightless existence. But coming to Jesus in faith is like stepping out of that utter darkness into the blinding glare of the light of the world, which makes the noonday sun dim by comparison. Yet all of that is merely the illustration. It's not the reality. Stepping out of utter darkness and into the stark light is just a physical description of the spiritual reality that Paul's telling us about in this text. Darkness is an understandable representation of the desire for sin, the deeds of sin, the kind of immorality that is best suited to be obscured in the shadows. The light is the exposure of all things. It is all things being clearly seen and seen for what they are. There is no 
hiding corruption in the light. There is no hiding deceit in the light. So Paul says in verse 13, it's the light by which all things are reproved or exposed. To walk in the light is to live in honesty and openness and purity. It's hiding nothing. Spiritually speaking, that contrast is absolutely required of all followers of Jesus and all churches called by his name. That contrast between darkness and light is a command intended to compel the church towards obedience and purity in its membership. We noted last week at the end of chapter 4 and our text here in chapter 5, have some similarities, right? You, you can see at the end of chapter 4 and, and in our text in chapter 5, there's, there's these lists of things to do and to not do. There's what we would call moral codes, how to live and what to avoid. We could argue that that list in chapter 4 is targeted towards individual obedience, the morality to which each of us are called, but now the list in chapter 5 is without question a call to holiness and purity within the assembly. Let me point out a, a few things that proves this is the case, that it is about purity within the assembly. First off, the context of the book. That is the natural reading of any portion of this letter. It is a letter to the church at Ephesus. And so unless we have a compelling reason not to, we should take all the instruction as a command to the Lord's churches. Second, the context of the chapter is about the Lord's church. Before our text, you'll find up in verse 1, be ye, is one of the great things in the King James Version, as you get that plural form of you, ye, you all, you all be followers of God, just as the plural as dear children would suggest. After our text, the church context continues as the church has advised how to worship in verses 19 and 20, right? Speaking and singing and praying together. A few verses later, in verses 25 through 27, it gives the church's calling to purity as the bride of Christ. So the context of the book is the church, the context of the chapter is the church, and the context we're studying this passage is about the church. Verse 3 lists sins which Paul says should not be named among you. Verse 7, he says, ye, that is you all, should not be partakers with those who continue to walk in darkness. In verse 11, he says to have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. So again, the the context of the letter is the church. The context of this chapter is the church. The, the content of this passage is about the church. And I want to stress that up front because as we go through the text, we need to consider as a church, what does this require of us? We want to think about holiness and purity as if it is just a personal thing. We want to, we want to take a hands-off approach to all sin. You, know, you you just do you and I'm not going to get involved. Paul forbids that here. Right here, the Holy Spirit inspired word is telling us to abstain not only from sin, but also 
you know, as, as we do this individually, we also as a community of believers have to walk in the light. We have to disassociate from, have no fellowship with those walking in darkness so that those things are not even named among us. Listen, the church is not called to uphold a slightly better version of the world's morality. We're expected to maintain that dramatic and obvious contrast between darkness and light. You know from what we've learned already in Ephesus that there was that temple of Artemis right outside the city, looming as a, uh, you know, casting a shadow over Ephesus. Travelers would go out of their way to, to visit there in order to worship that false goddess engaging in immoral sexuality with temple prostitutes, both female and male temple prostitutes. The Lord's church is called to be countercultural in its holiness. It was true in that day, and it's true of this day. We are to reject darkness and live as children of light. Our two main themes that run alongside each other in verses 3 through 14. Simply disassociate from darkness and live in the light. And disassociate with the darkness as we jump into verses 3 through 6. I'm going to read them again, but I want you to look at it and listen to this. For several specific sins, Paul says we must disassociate from, and also listen for why we must disassociate from. Verse 3, but fornication, and uncleanness, and covetousness, let it not be once named among you, as becometh saints, neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather the giving of thanks. For this you know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words. For because of these things comes the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be not ye, therefore, partakers with them. First off, let's look at some of the specific examples of sin which the text says we're to withdraw from. And then also see why Paul says we must withdraw from as he makes this moral code, this list, starting in verse 3, he says, fornication, and the word there is porneia in Greek. It's where we get our word pornography from. And to be sure, pornography would be included in what Paul's saying. But there is a much broader meaning as well. The word essentially means sexual immorality. That's pretty broad in its scope. Any sexual activity outside of God's design for marriage would be included in this. It would be sex with any person to whom you are not married. It would be premarital sex, all forms of homosexuality, uh, adultery, and more. The word uncleanness, we would probably use the word impurity today. If the first word encompassed like this large classification of sexual sin, the word uncleanness or impurity is actually covering even broader classification. It could be speaking of all kinds of impurity, all kinds of sin, 
And that's probably what Paul means as he uses that word all, all uncleanness. But most often this word is also associated with sexual sins. You'll, you'll see that broad sense just in the former chapter, back in chapter 4, verse 19, he condemns those who have given themselves over to licentiousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. And then that greed that he mentioned back there is exactly where he goes again. That word greediness is the same one he uses for covetousness in our text in chapter 5, verse 3. It might seem out of place that greed can fit in here with sexual sins because all of those sexual sins are essentially an expression of greed. It's a desire to have what is not yours to have, a lust to have more than what's right and proper. So it does apply to sexual sin, but it also, as we would usually associate that word with greed or coveting with money, that would be included in here too. And so at this point, just after the first three on the list, I suppose that Ephesus is entirely unlike modern America, right? Certainly in the past 2,000 years or so, our society has evolved past these issues. We don't look around and see all kinds of sexual sin embraced. We don't, we don't welcome and support greed as if it's a celebrated institution in our society. Right? Things haven't changed. Now, having labeled wicked sexual activity and lust and greed of our hearts, Paul goes on to even address the way we talk. In verse 4, he condemns filthiness, foolish talk, and jesting. All three of those have to do with speech. Filthiness is the word that means obscenity or filthy speech. Foolish talking should be obvious enough. Silly talk. Jesting is actually a compound word in the original language to, to have coarse humor, or we would say making crude jokes. Obviously, the Apostle Paul was an unhappy man whose vision for all Christians was to outlaw laughter and live in a joyless existence. Of course that's not true. Humor and laughter are not sinful. Proverbs even describes them as being like good medicine. But there is a coarse jesting, a crude way of joking, which makes light of what God says is serious, and that has to be avoided. So, for example, for many, many years, homosexuality has always been a serious sin, but for many, many years, our society turned it into a joke. Paul's not saying that all humor and all laughter is a sin. He is saying that anything that trivializes what God calls sin and makes it into a crude joke, he says it is unbecoming of followers of Jesus. As Paul makes this morality code, the list of sins to avoid, he not only says what we should avoid, he also explains why we have to avoid them. Listen to what he says. At the end of verse 3, let it not be what's named among you. I'm actually sort of split on what exactly Paul means when he says this. There's a subtle difference. It might be that Paul is saying that 
Church represents the Lord Jesus in the world, and so at no time should there even be a hint of such sins within the Lord's assembly. The other possibility is that he's actually referring to the Old Testament prohibition of even mentioning the names of false gods. So for example, in Exodus 23, verse 13, there's the command to make no mention of the names of other gods. Psalm 16, verse 4 says, I will not take their names on my lips. And for what it's worth, I I actually kind of lean toward thinking that's what Paul means here. There's a hint in verse 5 where he like tags on the term, which is idolatry. That that's what he means. And if that's what he's doing, then the idea here is to remind the church at Ephesus that these sins are not just activities that tempt us, they are also idols that we tend to worship. But whichever way he meant that statement, when he says, let it not be once named among you, it's clear enough that such sins should not be found within the Lord's church. We're not being followers, we're not being imitators of God if we engage in such ungodly activities. So twice, once in verse 3, and again in verse 4, Paul points out how such behavior is unseemly. These sins are entirely incompatible with the Christian life in Christ. Look at how he does it in verse 3. Putting away those sins and not letting them be named among us, he says, that becomes saints. He uses that word becomes to say it's proper, it's fitting. That is what is fitting to do as saints of God is to disassociate from such things. Then in verse 4, he again says that those sins are not convenient. That's an old English expression for it is not fitting. It's not proper. It doesn't belong. Engaging in these sinful behaviors is entirely incongruous with living a new life in Christ. We have to disassociate from those activities and, listen, we have to disassociate from those activities and from those individuals which engage in those activities. Look at verse 5, for this you know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things comes the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be not you, therefore, partakers with them. We could go through verse 5 and break down all those sins Again, I probably should explain that whoremonger is an old English word for a man who engages with a prostitute, right? But the Greek word there is actually the exact same as the word fornication up in verse 3. So just to be clear, an individual who lures someone into sexual activity that's not right and the one who is lured into it are both equally condemned by the word of God. Now, I won't belabor each of those terms, but that list in verse 5 matches the lists from verses 3 and 4, and it's followed with this heaping helping of why it is that we have to disassociate from such people. There are two basic reasons. First, disassociate from them because of what they won't get. Verse 5, 
They have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. They don't have an inheritance because they're not children of God. In fact, he says in verse 6, they are children of disobedience. So first, you disassociate them from them because of what they won't get, and then disassociate from them because of what they will get. Verse 6 says, any question you have about this would, would, would be a result of deception. It would be vain words. It would be empty arguments. Do not be fooled into thinking associating with people who do these things is acceptable, Paul says, for of these, because of these things comes the wrath of God on them. So what they won't have is a place in the kingdom of Christ and of God. What they will get is the wrath of God. Does this mean then that if you have ever committed a sexual sin, if you've ever been greedy, if you've ever told a crude joke, that you are a lost sinner bound for hell? Well, no. Repent of that sin. Turn from it. Trust the work of the Lord Jesus on your behalf. Come to the light. Stay in the light. And don't go back into the darkness. But if you will not repent, if you will not be turned or swayed, you have no reason to believe that you're not bound for hell. If you remain in darkness, if you hold on to those sins, Paul says you are calling for the wrath of God on your life. Furthermore, verse 5 tells us if you were a Christian, you'd already know this, right? For this you all know. Such people won't get a place in Christ's kingdom. Such people will get God's wrath. I want to just digress for a moment and ask you to leave a bookmark here, but turn to a helpful passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Please turn there, because we might be tempted to ask, how can we disassociate from such people? Paul says, don't be around people like this. We're surrounded by people like this. Truly, I don't think the calling is that you disassociate from all people. If that was Paul's goal, it would, to say, you know, never associate with anyone in any way, never engage with, or never talk to, never be friendly with any person guilty of these sins, it would be almost impossible for us to live in this world, Right? That would be a call to live a monastic life, you know, to live as a hermit in the wilderness. So listen, in 1 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 9, he says, I wrote to you in an epistle not to accompany with fornicators, pornea, sexual immorality, same word, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or idolaters, look, greed, sex, idolatry, it's the same list from Ephesians, right? For then, you must needs go out of the world. But now I have written unto you not to keep company, if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator, or covetousness, or a covetous, or an idolater, or a railer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, with such a one, no, not to eat. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not you judge them that are within? 
Them that are without, God judges. Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. Right? The call to disassociate from people engaging in these dark deeds is not to you know, close ourselves off from the world. It is to remove ourselves from the association with those people who claim Christ but won't leave the deeds of darkness behind. This is what Paul told Corinth. I'm certain it's what he's telling Ephesus too. If someone says that they are a brother or a sister and claims that place in God's family, but won't turn away from those sins, they're not God's children. They're not in the light. Look back at our text in Ephesians 5. Again, verse 6. Let no man deceive you with vain words. For because of these things comes the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be not you, therefore, partakers with them. For you were sometimes darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Right? So listen, he says, don't be partakers with them. The word there means to be joint owners or in a partnership or a sharing of mutual position. He'll say in verse 11, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. As a church, as a community of Christ, we cannot continue in association and partnership and, and fellowship with people who claim to know Christ, say they have seen the light, say they have come to the light, but they will not leave the darkness behind. Darkness and light are, are antithetical to each other. They cannot coexist. Anyone who tells you they can is, in Paul's words, trying to deceive you with empty talk. Don't be partnered with them, he says, because you once were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And so we've seen Paul argues that we have to disassociate from darkness, both the activities and the individuals who are in darkness. Now listen as he explains what it means to live in the light. In the rest of this text, I want you to see four things, four requirements for living in the light. First, to live in the light, you have to know whose you are. Verse 8 again. For you were sometimes darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. You already know that word walk is frequently used in this letter to talk about a manner of life, right? In verse 2, walk in love. Later on, verse 15, walk circumspectly or walk wisely. But here it's walk as children of light. This is not a text that's going to urge you to go out and find yourself or to base your identity in some deepest part of your inner being that you've just discovered. Knowing who you are is not nearly as important as knowing whose you are. If you believe in the Lord Jesus as your Savior, you've already denied yourself, you're lost to yourself, you find your identity in Him. He is the Son of God, God whom John says is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. Jesus is the Son of God. He is God. He is the brightness of God's glory, the expressed image of God's person. When you are in Christ through faith, Paul says you are a child of light. Not only 
does Paul say we are light's children? He also says in verse 8, you are light in the Lord. Not just in the light, you are the light. Now I have to be careful here. And maybe the smartest way to understand this is just go to Jesus and ask, what does this mean? Because you realize that Jesus, who stood up in the temple courtyard and shouted, I am the light of the world. He also looked at his disciples and said, you are the light of the world. Remember how he said that in the Sermon on the Mount? You are the light of the world. You are like a a candle lifted up to shine through the whole house. The idea is in their their homes and the walls are this light-colored clay wall. And you can take a candle and you would move the candle up and put it in the corner because the light from the candle would reflect off the light-colored walls and ceiling and it would illuminate the whole room. When Jesus says, you are the light of the world, he's describing light in that way. You're not the source of light. You are to reflect the source of light. Jesus is the source of light. You reflect his light. And so Paul says here to walk, right? Have a manner of life so that your light is a reflection of the light of Jesus shining on you and in you and through you. So first, to live in the light, you must know whose you are. You are a child of the light. Second, to live in the light, you must live good and right and true. Verse 9, for the fruit of the Spirit is all goodness and righteousness and truth. Many ancient manuscripts here say the fruit of the light instead of the fruit of the Spirit. And that's probably right to say it's the product of, of living in the light are these things. Having the light shine on you is what brings this fruit of goodness and righteousness and truth. And of course, the Holy Spirit of God is required for that in in order for us to engage in these things. This trio of Christian virtues in verse 9 is not a comprehensive statement of all the fruits of the Spirit any more than the The list of sins up in verses 3 through 5 is a comprehensive list of all sins. But these three virtues dispel the sins listed above. Or said another way, these three virtues of the Christian life are like flipping the light switch on in a dark room. The light pervades and the darkness flees. And so looking at those words, goodness and righteousness and truth, does that describe you? Do you want to do what is good? More than that, all goodness. Do you see how all goodness in verse 9 contrasts with all uncleanness up in verse 3? Do you want to be righteous? Which is more than just being right. You know, we have this tendency to want vindication, proven right. Righteousness is, righteousness is not about vindication for ourself. It's obedience and how you live so that the glory of God will be vindicated. Do you want to embrace what is true? Because after all, Jesus is the truth, right? We just read in Revelation 19, he is faithful and true, right? Honesty and integrity and honorable living is based in what is true. Listen, what Paul's describing here is it's not enough just to try to avoid the sins that are listed up in verse 3 through 5. They have to be replaced with 
what is good and what is right and what is true. For that matter, really clear, Paul was already clear about this in the text. He didn't wait to get to this list of virtues. Look at verse 4. As he condemned wicked speech, he says to replace it with the giving of thanks. That is what your mouth was made for, after all. Living as children of light isn't just about abstaining from sin. You also have to live out what is good and right and true. Third, to live in the light, you must seek to please God. Verse 10, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. The word proving there means to to test or approve. The idea is seeking. The New King James Version is good here when it says finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. Or the ESV says to try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Is your goal in life to please yourself, right? To feed your greed? Or do you find your greatest satisfaction in doing what it is that pleases the Lord? Who is it you want to make happy? You're not going to make everybody happy. In fact, if you seek to do what pleases God, you're going to live in the light in a way that the children of darkness are going to be unhappy with you. But living in the light means that you seek to please the Lord. That takes some effort. You have to try. You have to find out. You have to discern. You do that through seeking the Lord's will through the Lord's word. The base of that desire, though, is that you're gonna, you've given up the life of greed and satisfying the desires of your flesh. You want to fulfill the desires of your Savior to live in the light. You have to do what pleases God with your life. Fourth, to live in the light you must expose the deeds of darkness. Verses 11 through 14, we need to dig into it for a minute. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light. For whatsoever does make manifest is light. Wherefore, he says, awake you that sleep and arise from the dead. Christ will give you light. So we need to focus on that word reprove for just a minute. It's this Greek word, elenko, and it it means to convict or to expose, right? Light exposes darkness. It's the same word Jesus used when he was talking to Nicodemus in John 3, when he says, everyone who's practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, because they've been wrought in God. So, please hear this. Living as children of light does not mean avoiding darkness at all costs. Living as children of light requires confronting darkness at all costs. And if you hear that and you think, oh, yeah, let's start exposing us some darkness. Stop. Paul does say you cannot partner with or fellowship with those in darkness. He does say you are to expose darkness 
the darkness. But he also says in verse 12, it is a shame to even speak of those things done of them in secret. Exposing darkness is not about bringing every salacious detail and every scandalous misdeed forward. How is darkness exposed? Well, verse 13, Paul says everything is exposed when the light is revealed. Darkness and light cannot coexist together. Here's the cool thing. Only light can drive out darkness. That's the only direction this works. I wish I could have made that bold blow at exactly the right time in this message. But just just think about this for a second. We have a light bulb. I can put a light bulb in there, and we can flip the switch, and the light comes on, and the darkness runs. We don't have a dark bulb we can put in there and flip a switch and make all the light go away. That's not how light and dark work. Doing what is good and right and true exposes the dark. Darkness can't drive away light. Light drives away darkness. Darkness only exists wherever there is not light shining. And everywhere the light shines, the darkness flees. We expose the dark by shining the light. There are deeds of darkness that need to be exposed, but that's accomplished by living in the light, doing what is good and right and true exposes the darkness. More importantly, declaring the gospel of Jesus, the light of the world, exposes the darkness. This is what Paul says in verses 13 and 14, that light illuminates, the light of Christ transforms unbelievers. In a parallel passage in, in Colossians 1.13, Paul says God has delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. If you want to see darkness exposed, declare the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world. Verse 14, Paul gives what I would like to call a loose quotation from the Old Testament. You will not find any single passage that says what Paul says in verse 14. Right? I like the NIV here. Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. You will not find that in any single verse in the Old Testament, but you will find that is this consistent testimony of the Word of God. The imagery there is of someone who is asleep in the darkness of night, and they stay in that state until the sun rises and shines on them. They open their eyes and they're illuminated with the light. What a beautiful picture of salvation this is. And it's one of Paul's favorites, by the way. He uses it in in, in 2 Corinthians to say that God, who commanded light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of his son, Jesus Christ. (laughs) The picture there that I get is it's, it's night, it's darkness, your eyes are closed, the gospel is the light that illuminates your life until your eyes are finally opened and you are face-to-face with Jesus. The gospel is the call to wake up, to stop sleeping through this life, to be done with darkness, to to wake up and open your eyes, because Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus exposes darkness. He 
exposes those dark deeds. He is the source of divine light. And so if you know him, you must disassociate from the darkness and live in the light. If you do not know him, my prayer is that the Holy Spirit of God opens your eyes, exposes the darkness of your heart and the dark deeds of your life so that the love and light of Jesus Christ shines in your life like the dawning sun, right? Banishing darkness, awaking your heart to this new light that has come. 